Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're in Genesis 12 today. We start the next section of the book of Genesis. So turn to Genesis 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read Genesis 12, 1 through 9. And I'm going to give a bit of a warning. This particular sermon, I'm not saying it's not going to have much pastoral encouragement in it, but there is going to be some more, if you will, heavy teaching because this particular passage, particularly 12, 1 through 3, is considered by many scholars to be potentially the most important text in the Bible, which sounds maybe shocking, but it lays, if you will, the groundwork for the rest of what you end up reading in Scripture with regard to the resolution to the problem that we see in Genesis 3 through 11. And so we want to understand this well. So we will, if you will, labor over it, contemplate it, spend some time thinking about the implication of what's said here, and then we will be drawing those implications out as we go through the rest of chapter 12 through 22, which is really the narrative of Abraham. So if you will, look with me at chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would give us understanding, not merely that we might properly interpret and apprehend intellectually what's being said here, but Father, that we might hear your son speak by the spirit through this word to us. We might understand and apply the blessings that we see here, the way you spoke to Abram, interrupting his life, this pagan man in a pagan land, and interrupting his life with grace, the way that you called him in a gracious calling to walk away from everything the world offers for a 
land he had not seen. For an offspring that seemed an impossibility with his aged barren wife. And yet, Abram knew that it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. May we learn from that example of faith and obedience. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand how you covenanted grace to Abram. That you showed him blessing upon blessing in the face of a cursed and fallen and sinful and dying world. May we understand that grace and rejoice in the fact that that grace is ours in Christ as it was Abraham's in Christ. And may we see in him, in this promise you make to him, that Abram became an instrument of blessing to all the families of the earth, even our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 12 brings us to what's often called the patriarchal section of Genesis. So if you went and bought an Old Testament survey or an Old Testament introduction, they would break Genesis up into Genesis 1 through 11, which they would call the primeval section of Genesis. In other words, the history of the early earth, if you will, section of Genesis, and the patriarchal, notice the two Ps, the patriarchal section from 12 to 50. In other words, the rest of the book of Genesis focused on the patriarchal section. We already considered the primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11, and so now we're going to look at the patriarchal history. The patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're going to look at the patriarchal history in 12 through 50. But this is what I do not want you to miss, because there is a temptation as we come to Genesis 12 and study Genesis 12 through 50, and then continue on through the Pentateuch, the first five books, to rip Genesis 12 and following, if you will, with the Old Testament, away from the context of Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 1 through 11, we see that Yahweh created man, that man fell into sin and was cursed with death, separation from God. And that God graciously made the covenant promise of the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's sin and death. Who would bring us back to dwell with the Lord. We call that original promise in Genesis 3.15 the mother promise. It is the promise that gives birth to all the other biblical promises. And we are looking for that promise. In other words... That seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. We are looking for him to come. We are waiting for that second Adam. The Savior, the Messiah. We're waiting for him to come and rescue us. And return us, redeem us. And return us to God's dwelling place. So that we are once again God's people. Living with God. Under his rule and blessing. We want to be that. So throughout his work, Moses is keen to show us once again how we become God's people, dwelling with God in his place, living under his rule and blessing. And he is keen to show us that all of that will be brought to fruition by the seed of the woman, 
by the offspring of the woman. And it's in that context, it's in that context we're given the story of Abram and the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, with him. A story that takes us from Adam through Seth, through Noah, and now to Abram. In fact, as I pointed out during Christmas, the genealogies of Genesis are written intentionally to drive you to this patriarch, Abram. They're driving you to him. So this morning, we're going to begin looking at this patriarchal section by looking at Abram. And what I want you to see this morning is three gracious acts of God toward Abram. So I want you to hear that. Three gracious acts of God toward Abram. I want you to hear that language because we could also call it three mighty works of God toward Abram. As we get in Acts 2 when the apostles are speaking in other languages they don't know. And the people say, we hear them telling us the mighty acts of God. They're preaching the Bible and how it is fulfilled in Christ. So, if you will, the three gracious acts of God toward Abram. The first one is that the Lord graciously spoke to Abram. You're going to see that in Genesis 12.1. The Lord graciously spoke to Abram. The second one is the Lord graciously called Abram. He graciously calls him. You're going to see that also in 12.1, but you're going to see it as well in his obedience to that call in 12.4 through 9. And the third one is that the Lord graciously gave promises to Abram, made promises to Abram covenanted promises to Abram. You'll see that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and in verse 7. Now, I want you to remember, because as we go through these three movements, there's sort of one central truth I don't want you to lose sight of. The central idea throughout is that God, of his own good pleasure, condescended to covenant grace to Abram and his offspring. God of his own good pleasure condescended to sinful man to promise grace to him and his offspring. So let's see the first gracious act of God toward Abram. Look with me. The Lord graciously spoke to Abram. Look with me at Genesis 12.1 and notice what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram. Okay, I'm going to stop there. The Lord said to Abram. This isn't a phrase we should just like quickly pass over. Like, oh yeah, God's speaking to people again. This is a significant statement. Here's a wicked, pagan, sinful man who lives in a pagan nation who's under the curse of the fall. And God speaks to him. That's what I mean by condescension. Here's a creature and the creator of all things. If you think about the creation, the vastness of the universe that God created, the God who spoke and all those things leapt into existence, condescends to speak to a man, a creature. Not only a creature, one who can't even sustain his own breath or heartbeat, 
condescends to speak to. Not only a creature, though, a sinful, rebellious, idolatrous creature. It's remarkable. Sometimes we just read over these statements and just keep going. That's remarkable grace. That's incredible condescension. I know that when reading our Bibles, it's easy to quickly pass over phrases like this. But think about how utterly profound and earth-shattering and gracious it is for God to speak to you. The Lord here speaks to a pagan man who lives in a pagan land, who is a member of a pagan family. This is God graciously speaking to a sinful man. Abram was not a righteous man searching for the true God. No one seeks for God. No, not one. Abram was going about his life in his country with his people alongside his family. And the Lord spoke into that situation and interrupted his whole life. He interrupted his whole life. He interrupted Abram's life with grace. Friends, I guess what I to start with, has the Lord interrupted your life with grace? Has he spoken to you by his spirit and through his word? Every time you open your Bibles and read, you are hearing God speak his grace to you by the Spirit. Every single time. This is intensively true. When you come to church and gather with the Lord's people and the minister preaches the word, of course, assuming he's doing so accurately, the minister preaches the word, Christ is speaking to you. You're hearing the Lord speak his word of grace in your hearing. This is one of the great blessings of the Christian life. We have God's sacred word. We do not hear him speak audibly to us as Abram does here. But listen, Peter, one of the apostles, heard God speak audibly to Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Christ's transfigured glory with Moses and Elijah there ministering to him. Imagine being a part of that scene. Peter saw all of that and he heard God speak from heaven. This is my beloved son. And what does Peter do on further reflection? He says this, we have a more sure word that is a lamp shining in a dark place, the word of God. More sure. Your Bible is more sure than hearing God audibly. And seeing him in a vision. The light of God's revelation shines forth from the pages of scriptures and enlightens our darkened eyes. The word of God provides our feet firm paths to tread on. The word of God is our true bread. It feeds our souls. It is inspired by God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God makes us 
wise unto salvation, even as we are taught it from infancy. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And the word brophe is there in the Greek, which means infancy, when Timothy was being taught it from infancy, from childhood. Remember, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The Lord spoke to Abram, but he also continues to speak to us in his son by the Spirit through his word. Let us read them. Gather to hear them preached. Pray through them. Write the word of God on the frontlets of our eyes and on the doorposts of our houses. And if I could make a note to Sovereign Grace to your parents, parents, please, I plead with you to teach the scriptures to your children. It's a command. Even if you read one chapter of the Bible a day to your children from their infancy, which takes three to six or seven minutes, depending on the chapter, they will hear you read through the whole Bible nearly six times in their lives in your homes by the time they're 18 and going off. Six times. You have to invest five minutes a day. Children, I encourage you to remind your parents, nag them if necessary, to read the Bible to you. To read it to you. As a family, I will never forget a particularly difficult time in the life of our family. And kids, I want you to hear this. A particularly difficult time in the life of our family when Jared reminded me to read the Bible. We were in terrible grief. I was pretty much broken down at the kitchen table in tears. And Jared, my nine-year-old at the time, he was nine at the time, came to me and said, Dad, probably called me Daddy, but, you know, he's 22, so I won't put those words in his mouth now. (laughs) Came to me and said, Dad, we need to read God's Word. We need to read God's Word. And he opened the Bible to Habakkuk 3. And he had me read this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, though everything is lost, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And the word of God graciously comforted me in that moment. But Jared knew to take me there because we had read that as a family. Sovereign grace, we need the Lord to speak his grace to us in the word. And he spoke grace to Abram. In fact, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And this covenant that the Lord made with Abram is unilateral. 
In other words, what I mean by that is it is imposed upon Abram by the Lord. The Lord did not make, or if you will, go out and find a man looking to make an agreement with him. The Lord made an agreement. He imposed an agreement upon a man named Abram. The Lord sovereignly and graciously imposed a covenant upon Abram. A covenant that has parties. His members of the covenant, God and Abram and his offspring, promises the things I oath to give you. Obligations, here's how you respond to that. Signs, here's a visible word to remind you of my promises. And sanctions. And so, you know, we use sanctions here to talk about blessings and curses involved with the keeping or the breaking of the covenant. We'll see that covenant given more flesh as we move through Genesis 12 through 22. But the parties, the promises, the obligations, and the sanctions or the blessings and curses of the covenant are fundamentally the same from here forward. Ordinarily, biblical covenants have these aspects. Look at the parties. Genesis chapter 12, notice this. The Lord said to Abram, and notice what, go to verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So here's the parties. The Lord and Abram. But it's not only the Lord and Abram. Look down at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. In other words, Abram and his offspring and the Lord are the covenant parties here. There are obligations. You notice that in Genesis 12.1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here are a set of commands. There are promises. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to multiply your seed into a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Namely, through your offspring. And there are sanctions. In other words, blessings and curses. I will bless you and make your name great. Those who believe will share your blessings. Those who do not believe will be cursed. We will be given the covenant sign of circumcision later in Genesis 17. But just please don't miss this. This is God administering, administering, to minister. That's all the word means, to minister. This is God administering his grace through his covenant with Abram, the same covenant grace which he began administering, ministering to man in Genesis 3.15. The same covenant of grace given to Adam is now being more, and Noah, frankly, is now being more formally organized with Abraham. What we are seeing in God's covenant with Abram is substantially the same promise as we see unfolded since Genesis 3.15. In fact, we are seeing in Abram the promise of the seed of the woman who will conquer Satan's sin and death. We are seeing the promise of the Christ who will bring us back into the dwelling place of God to live with him as his people under his rule and blessing. And we are seeing all of that now given in a form that will serve as a paradigm for God's gracious promise. All the rest of the gracious dealings of God with his people throughout the rest of the Bible story in the Old Testament and the New Testament will be formally based upon this covenant with Abraham. 
Here's my point. God graciously, catch this part, God graciously and unilaterally comes to Abram and covenants with him and his offspring. And his offspring, Abram's offspring, is the Christ. Galatians 3.16. God made a promise to Abram, Abraham, and to his offspring, who is the Christ. Galatians 3.16. This leads us to our second point. The Lord graciously calls Abram. So he speaks to him. The Lord graciously calls Abram. Look at Genesis 12.1 again. You're thinking, how long is this going to take? You only did a few words. Don't worry. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Fundamentally, this is a call to Abram. It's a call to Abram to give up his life of idolatry to follow the Lord. This is his gracious call to him. This is a call to saving faith in the Lord. Now, I'm going to explain that a bit more in our next point because you might think it's all commands. How could it be saving faith? I'll explain that a bit more. But I want you to hear how this same kind of gracious call reverberates in various places. I want to focus on how this call to faith, and in doing that, I want to focus on how this call has, to faith has really significant present consequences to Abram's life. When God speaks to him and graciously calls him to faith, that call has significant present consequences to his life. Abram must leave his land. Now remember, he's 75 years old when he leaves his land. This call comes to him before he's 75, but when he's finally leaving, he's 75 years old. He's to leave his family, his kindred, and his people. Now, I want you to consider for a minute being a 75-year-old man with an elderly, barren wife. And God comes to you and says, I want you to leave your home where you've lived your whole life and your family, whom you've grown up with. And all your friends and your nation, everything that you know. I want you to leave it all to go to a land that you have never seen, that you know nothing about, and to produce an offspring that will grow into a mighty nation, even though your wife is barren, you're both elderly, and you have had no children yet. He is to leave everything behind for a land and a people that he has not seen. This call to Abram is a test of faith. A test of faith particularly regarding the land, which we'll see played out really in Genesis 12 through 15. Abram will though have another test of faith with regard to the seed or the offspring. Look at Genesis 22.2. Just keep your hand there. Remember that. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from to land that I will show you. Now go to Genesis 22 briefly, and you'll see a test with regard to the seed, test of faith. 22.2, 2. 
We're already told in 21 it's a test, but look at verse 2. He said, God speaking to Abram, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. In both places, go from where you are to this place you've never seen and do this thing that is certainly an incredible test of faith. Leave behind your family, your land, everything you've ever known your whole life and go to this land you've never seen. And, by the way, you've been waiting for this multiplying seed that will grow into a mighty nation and bless all the earth. I've given you one son through your wife, Sarah. Take him up onto a mountain you've never been to in a land you've never seen and sacrifice him. You think about the tests of faith here. Imagine walking away from your own nation your own family, your own friends, everything you know and have known for 75 years. Everything you know and love to go to a land you have never seen and to receive a multiplying offspring in your elderly age from your barren wife. You are not moving to some state that you have seen. This isn't like, I flew out to South Carolina. I thought it was pretty. My family's going to move there. You are not going to some location that's equipped with modern communication so you can keep in touch with people back home. You are moving to a place you have never seen. And in doing so, you will likely never again see the land or the people you know and love. Calvin made a helpful comment here. It is as if God said, I command you to go out with your eyes closed. You're not allowed to ask where I'm about to lead you until, having renounced your country, you have given yourself wholly to me. God is calling Abram to saving faith and the obedience that springs from that saving faith. John Gill commented this way. This call of Abram is an emblem of the call of men by the grace of God out of the world. And from among the men of it and to renounce the things of it. And not be conformed unto it. And to forget their own people and their father's house. And to cleave to the Lord and follow him whithersoever he directs. We hear the same kind of call to faith from Jesus, don't we? We hear this from the Lord Jesus as well. Listen to Jesus. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's in Luke 9. Later in Luke 14, he's going to tell you to forsake your family, your wife, your own children. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? This is the gospel call. This is the gospel call. Christ comes to you by his spirit through the preaching of the word of God and he offers you grace upon grace in himself. He calls you to believe in his name 
to repent of your sins, to turn from your wicked ways, and to obediently follow his commands. Please hear me. The grace of faith is a gift of God's grace. And that grace of faith in Christ is a gift that necessarily issues in repentance from sin and good works toward God. It must have seemed deeply foolish to the world for Abram to obey these commands and to go to a land he's never seen. Can you imagine the conversation you're having with your family and friends at 75? We're going to a country we've never seen, and we're going to have a whole bunch of children. We're going to grow into a mighty nation. Can you imagine how foolish they must have thought you were? I'm sure his family and friends wondered, what madness has overtaken you? Yet this is God's call. He calls us to forsake the world and follow him. We are to forsake all the pleasures of this present life for the sake of eternal life in heaven. In other words, we are to do what Abram did, forsake the world that we are a part of our whole lives that we see for a heaven that is still yet unseen. While we all experience the travail of giving up the pleasures of this world for heaven, I was thinking about the fact that we're called to do that in a land where we can be blessed with unusual comfort in doing so and freedom to do so. But I'm sure our missionaries feel this ever more acutely than we often do. God calls them to a land and a people they have never seen, leaving everything behind to follow him, having the unseen heaven as their reward. It must seem like utter insanity to their unbelieving family member and friends. And I can tell you as a board member at Radius, having been present with some of their unbelieving family members and friends, it does seem like utter insanity to them. Yet in spite of worldly protests, it is always wise to follow the Lord, to trust him, to obey his voice. Always wise. No matter how foolish the world thinks it is, it's always wise. Listen to Calvin here. It is the true proof of our obedience when we are not wise in our own eyes, but commit ourselves entirely to the Lord. Whenever, therefore, he requires anything of us, we must not be so concerned about success as to allow fear and anxiety to hinder our course. For as better, it is better with closed eyes to follow God as our guide than by relying on our own prudence to wander through those circuitous paths. It is better with closed eyes to follow God as our guide. We may not always know where God is leading us, but we do know that he's always good and trustworthy. And we do so because God promised to be good to us. And in Christ's person and work, God was good to us in spades. That leads us to our third point. God's grace or God's gracious promises to Abraham. The Lord graciously made promises to Abraham. Look at Genesis 12 too. 
go to the land that I will show you, so that, you know, implies land is being given, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Notice those words, and I will, at the beginning of verse 2. And I will. Note the order of that text. God gives Abram commands, and then God says, and I will make of you. Now, when people see that the covenant obligations come first in the narrative order, they often make two mistakes. Notice the commands come before the promises. They often make two mistakes when they see that. First, they assume that Abram's obedience is the basis for the covenant grace he's being shown. He'll get all that grace once he obeys. They assume that. Second, they assume that Abram's absolute obedience is necessary to him maintaining the covenant promises that God has given. His obedience is the basis for the covenant promises, and his obedience is the necessary element, if you will, for maintaining the covenant promises. But the point in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is not, it is emphatically not that Abram's obedience is the basis for the covenant of grace he's being shown. God has called a pagan man from a pagan family in a pagan land. The word and, right there in verse 2, the word and is not the word because. That's clear in the Hebrew. It's clear. It's a conjunction. That means and. This is giving you a narrative order. It's not giving you a causal order. Remember the context. The Lord came to a pagan man in a pagan land and graciously spoke to him and called him and made promises to him. So as a friend of God, Abram's called. As a friend of God, as a man to whom God graciously called, Abram was to now walk in obedience. Children, I I was trying to think of an illustration that brings us across to everyone, particularly you. All you children have probably seen families in our church, or maybe your family in our church, has adopted a little child. Do your parents or the parents adopting that little child expect that child to be obedient to them? Yes, of course they expect that child to be obedient to them. But they do not wait for the child to be obedient, and then on the basis of the child's obedience, adopt them. They graciously call him their own child, give him their name, and then command him to walk in a manner consistent with that name. Further, even human parents who adopt children do not tell those children, as long as you're perfectly obedient, you can remain my child. But if you sin, if you're disobedient at any point, then you are out. Even wicked human fathers don't do that. And friends, when God adopts Abram, he does not give Abram a covenant promise that says, Abram, as long as you continue in obedience, the promise will stand. But if you disobey, the promise has come to an end. If that were the case, we would run immediately into a problem in the next passage in Genesis 12, verses 10 and following, when Abraham disobeys. But that's not the case. Rather, the Lord is graciously calling and adopting Abram into his family. The Lord is saying to Abram, you are mine. Among men, I have chosen you. I have set my grace and favor upon you, and my promise is an everlasting and inviolable promise. 
Now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This becomes abundantly clear when you consider the fivefold blessing here. Notice the curse is spoken five times. If you don't remember, the curse is spoken five times in Genesis 3 through 11. We don't turn to all of them. Genesis 3.14, Genesis 3.17, Genesis 4.11, Genesis 5.29, Genesis 9.25. Curse, 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 curse. Five times. Now, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, in this seminal moment, we hear blessing, 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 blessing. Five times. And we are being told very clearly that Abram is in the covenant of grace and that his call into salvation in the seed of the woman is instrumental to our own. What is taking shape with Abram's covenant is the promise of the Christ. In Genesis 12 through 22, we see the form of the central promise of the Christ being given more shape. God is drawing more clearly, if you will, the outline of his promise of the Christ. And he's doing that by promising land, seed, and blessing to all the families of the earth. So I want to run through those three promises really briefly. Look first at the land, Genesis 12, 1, the very last phrase. To the land that I will show you. Implicit here is the land promise. God has prepared a land for Abram and he's calling him to it. This land is a gift of God's grace. This is the land of Canaan. We will see this land promise focused upon in Genesis 12 through Genesis 15. So as we're walking through this, Genesis 12 through 15 focuses on the land promise. 15 becomes a transitional chapter from the land promise to the seed promise. And embedded in this land promise is the promise that Abram will dwell with God in his place. Abram's pagan family, remember our language in Genesis, Abram's pagan family lives east of Eden. And now Abram's being commanded to head west, back toward Eden. The land of promise. He's to go receive the land where God dwells. In fact, he understands he's receiving the land where God dwells. How do we know that? Look at Genesis 12, 4 through 7. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He was obedient. And Lot went with him. He takes his nephew with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, that's the land God would show him, the promised land. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, that will become important later in Genesis, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time... The Canaanites were in the land. In other words, the seed of the serpent is there. It presents a problem right off in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram in faith obeys the Lord, and he goes west of the land of promise. And when he arrives, the Lord speaks to him again and clarifies the covenant even further. And we see a problem in God's gift of the land of Canaan to Abram because there are Canaanites there. There's a seed of the serpent dwells there. But in the face of that reality, Abram believes God. 
Abram believes God. And what does Abram do? He builds an altar to the Lord who appeared to him and worships. In fact, he does this all through the land. Look at verses 8 and 9. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. He kept up his journey into the land of promise, and he built altars wherever he went in the land. What's the altar for? What's it for? It's for an atoning sacrifice to the Lord. He's likely participating in what Leviticus 1 calls the whole burnt offering, in which he is offering himself wholly to the Lord. In other words, everywhere Abram goes in the land, Abram worships the Lord. Abram believed God. Abram obeyed God. Abram worshiped God. Abram knew his need of an atoning sacrifice. In this way, Abram is an example to us of walking in faith and obedience to the Lord. Example to us. But even more important than him being an example, Abram is being established here as the instrument through whom the Lord will bring the seed of the woman who blesses all the families of the earth. Abram's covenant will deliver the land of Palestine. But that land is just a picture. Listen, Israel will eventually get the land of Palestine. But that land is just a picture, a taste of a fairer country. Of a better land. Because, more importantly, Abram's covenant promises the new heavens and the new earth. And Abram knew it. That's why Hebrews says this. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, Canaan, as in a foreign land, not as his home. Isn't that interesting? Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, Abram, for Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abram's covenant shows us the Christ will lead us into God's dwelling place, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the new heavens, and the new earth. Look at the second promise, the seed, Genesis 12, 2. And I will make of you a great nation. That implies what? Children. Genesis 12, 7 makes that even more clear. To your offspring, I will give this land. That implies children. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abram will have numerous offspring who will grow into a great nation. Now that seed promise is the focus of Genesis 15 through 22. The transition happens in Genesis 15 and then from 15 to 22, you're focused on the seed promise. And that great nation that's going to come from his seed is called Israel. Israel. They are called as God's people to go into God's land to live under God's rule and blessing. Further, Abram will have a great name in contrast to the people at Babel who tried to make a great name for themselves. God will give him a great name. Abram will be blessed and will be a blessing. Now, what is that great name and that blessing? What is that? It's to belong to the Lord. 
It's to be his friend, to see him face to face. It's to be named after him. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is for God to be your God and for you to be his people. It's the same promise that's given to King David in 2 Samuel 7. He will also have a great name. So how will Abram and David both have a great name? That leads to our third promise, the promise of blessing. Look at Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whom it dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Namely, in your offspring, as we'll see particularly in Genesis 22. Through Abram's covenant promise, God will bring the nation of Israel, a nation that is set apart as a holy priesthood to the Lord. But more than that, through Abram's covenant promise, God will bring about the salvation of all God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The Lord will work through Abram's offspring to bring Abram a great name and untold blessings. He'll not only bring a great name and untold blessings to Abram, but he'll bring the same to all the families of the earth. Abram's offspring will be the heir of the promised land. Friends, this is the promise of the Christ. It's the promise of the Christ. He will save both Jew and Gentile, non-Jew, in one nation that belongs to our triune Lord. He will build his church into a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In fact, the Christ not only delivers all of this, but Abram knew the Christ was delivering all of this. He knew it. Abram heard the gospel in this passage. And Abram believed in the gospel promise of the Christ. That's why Jesus can say in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So here's my question for you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that the Son of God took upon himself a human nature, body and soul, Do you believe that he was subjected to human frailty, to suffering, and to temptation, as you are in every way? Do you believe that Jesus taught, did miracles, and revealed himself to be the Christ? Do you believe that he kept the law perfectly, fulfilled all righteousness in every regard, that he was holy, innocent, and undefiled? Do you believe that Jesus paid the penalty, atoning fully and finally for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus was buried and on the third day he rose again bodily from the grave? Do you believe that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he presently rules and reigns and from where he intercedes constantly for his people? Do you believe that he poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so that men and women would be given new birth and faith and union with Christ? 
Do you believe he did all this for you and for your salvation? Are you trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of sins? Are you trusting in him alone to be your sanctification, your righteousness, and your wisdom? In other words, do you have the same faith Abram did? Do you have the same faith Abram did? Abraham heard the same gospel that you heard. And Abraham believed that gospel. He heard it preached to him right here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Abraham is an example of faith for us. But more importantly, Abraham's covenant is the instrument the Lord used to bring salvation to the nations, even to you. Listen, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Listen to what the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, you and me, by faith preached the gospel beforehand, before the events even took place, to Abraham, saying, here comes a quotation from Genesis 12, in you, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. May we be those who are of faith, in the Christ, as our father Abraham was. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would cause us to trust in, to lean upon, to give thanks for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that is so clearly unfolded through progressive revelation in your scriptures until the full light of glory shone in the face of Jesus Christ. May we look and trust in him. May we not cling to this present world, but leave behind everything for that heaven we cannot see, our great reward that we only have by faith now. We see by faith only now, but one day we'll see fully. Cause us to trust you, to walk with you, to persevere in the faith, and cause all those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, who have not repented of their sins, who are not walking in obedience, to believe and repent and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name, trusting him, and his grace for all good things that come from you, our Father. Amen.